turn to a series. Uh, um, of course, what's it called? Anybody know what it's called? Focus. So I'm preaching messages that try to bring into focus things that are very vital for us as believers, right? And so that's what we've been doing throughout this last couple of months. So today, I've got a special message for you. But before we continue, let's pray. Let's, let's offer our time to God. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. Whenever we hear your word, it has the power to change and transform us. Just, um, uh, faith comes by hearing the message. And the message comes through the word of God this morning. So I pray that faith would be released. Our eyes would be open. Our understanding would be much clearer of who you are and what you've done for us through your son, Jesus Christ. And you would bless the word that is received today. Help us to believe it, receive it, put it into action to bless you and for our benefit too. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 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 You know, every summer uh, we have all these celebrations throughout our cities and towns of Alberta, don't we? Uh, these, these celebrations we have of rural heritage, of our roots of the Old West. And we just had one that just finished. It's called, uh, it was called Whoop Up Days. I don't know if you attended that, or maybe if you're from, you know, if you're close to Tampa, maybe you went to Cornfest, but we have all these celebrations, but they're for a very, they're for that purpose of remembering our, our historical heritage, right? Of course, the, our biggest celebration in Alberta is what? The Calgary Stampede. You know, they just had, last July, they had their 100th, 111th incarnation of the greatest outdoor show on earth. And every year, this, this thing called the Calgary Stampede is always kicked off by a parade. So welcome to the Calgary Stampede Parade. So do, did you know that the Calgary Stampede Parade is the second largest in all of North America, second only to the Rose Bowl Parade in Pasadena, California? Interesting facts about the parade beginnings. The first Stampede, Calgary Stampede Parade took place on Labor Day, 1912. That's in September. It was described by the Calgary Herald as the grandest pageant in all history. What quite a claim, right? That first Stampede in 1912 attracted 80,000 uh, people. Today, more than 400,000 would watch that parade. Possibly even half a million this year watched that parade. During the 1940s, cattle herding, cattle herding was a part of the, of the parade and used to drive cattle through downtown Calgary. But it was a very short-lived tradition, you know why? And they abandoned, you know why? Due to the potential danger of a livestock, livestock stampede. My message today is entitled, Dangerous Worship. Dangerous worship. In the Bible, it's, it's all a lead in. In the Bible, it's recorded an event back in Bible history of way more and a greater significance than what it, than any stampede, Calgary stampede. So, in our Bible story today, the newly crowned king, David, has called for kind of like a national assembly, a national gathering. And, he, and complete with a unique parade. Now, this story is told in the Old Testament in First Chronicles chapter 13. And the main focus 
of this great event was, was the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant. This gold-covered chest with two angels spreading their wings. And, 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 and literally this was the, 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 the center focus of Israel's worship during the time of Moses. And God gave Moses the plans to build this elaborate tabernacle. And in the very heart of the, of the tabernacle was this Ark of the Covenant. And the ark, within the Ark were several things. There were like two stone tablets of the Ten Commandments. There was a ro- Aaron's rod, which had budded. And uh, there was a, this, this old pot, pot, this jar, a manna. Remember the, the eight manna from heaven? Well, all, that was contained within the Ark. And the Ark uh, also had poles. And these poles were meant to be uh, poles that the Levites carried on their shoulders to take the Ark Whatever, whenever God's people traveled through the desert. Now, whenever they advanced through the desert, every time they moved, the ark was always in front, approximately uh, uh, 2,600 feet in front of the ark, uh, of the the advance of the people. This this ark was always in in front of the people. And within, between the wings of the cherubim, uh, God would speak to Moses. So, we see that this, this Ark of the Covenant, or this holy Ark, this gold chest, was uh, the central focus of Israel, God's people, in their worship. But by David's time, by David's day, this Ark had, was separated and it was stored in the house of a guy named Abinadab for about 20 years. First Chronicles 14.2 says, And David knew the Lord had established him as king over Israel. And that his kingdom, his kingdom was highly exalted for the sake of his people, Israel. David was trying, was establishing a new kind of kingdom. A new capital city, Jerusalem, the city of David. He was leaving the old, the ways of his predecessor Saul, who, the king, who did not inquire of the Lord. See, he wanted God to be the very center, center of his kingdom's life. And so he brings out the ark out of the mothballs and he moves it to the capital city of Jerusalem. So there was this big parade, this big long parade, traveling eight miles towards Jerusalem. And all the people from all over the kingdom were following this ox cart, this new ox cart with the golden ark on top of it. It was was carrying it. And two of Abinadab's sons their names was Uzzah and Ohio, and they were in charge of keeping it. Now, these two young boys, the young men, they had actually grown up with, that, with the ark on their property. They had been there for 20 years. So they were, they were familiar with this treasure, maybe as familiar with, as familiar as, uh, as with grandma's um, china cabinet in the dining room. So they were familiar with it. And so that day... You can just picture them kind of walking along uh, with their farmer's work shirt and their blue jeans on, and they're kind of embarrassed about the intention that, that they're getting. And, uh, and as you read the story, something happens. And what happens next? When you first read about it, it doesn't seem like a big deal. They were passing a farmer's threshing field when one of the oxen caught his foot in a rough place, and he stumbled a bit while the 
or the cart lurched and the ark shifted. And then the, the parade stopped dead in its tracks. And the music died out like a wave all the way along the line. And people were saying, like, what? What, what happened? At the very front of the, of, of the line, behind the ox cart, David the king stood, stunned, speechless. Uzzah attempted to touch, to catch the ark from falling. And when he touched the ark, God struck him dead. Then David got angry. And in 1 Chronicles 13, 11, it says, And David was angry because the Lord has broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah today. Perez Uzzah means outbreak against Uzzah. And David's thinking, what's the deal? Like, what kind of God are you? And so David became afraid. And so what he did is he took that ark and he stored it in the nearby driveway of a guy named Obed-Edom. And he just left it here. And everybody that had assembled just quietly trudged away, bewildered silence. And then the story, you know, if you read the story in, front, in First Chronicles, this story of Uzzah, this story of Uzzah and the ox cart is just kind of just left hanging right in the air. And everybody is thinking, everybody who's reading it or is thinking it is thinking, like, what's up with that? What happens as you read from this point on, you see the writer literally changes the subject. And chapters, the next chapter, 14 verses 1 and 2, talks all about the, the king next to him. His name is Hiram, king of Tyre, to Israel's north. And he's talks about him generously providing all the materials for David's new palace new uh, palace in Jerusalem. And then if you keep on reading the next few verses, 3 to 6, tell about all the children that are going to be born to David in the years ahead. But, you know, as we as readers and as listeners, we're still thinking about Uzzah, like, what happened to Uzzah? What about his kids? What about his house? But the storyteller, the chronicler, just keeps forging forward. <clears throat> and he tells two stories about how David defeated Israel's worst enemies, the arch enemies, the Philistines. Listen to this, this first story. First Chronicles chapter 14, starting at verse 8. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over all Israel, they went up in full force to search for him. But David heard about it and went out to meet them. Now the Philistines had come and raided the valley of Rephaim. So David inquired of God, Shall I go and attack the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hands? And the Lord answered them, Go, I will deliver them into your hands. And that's what God did. <clears throat> they went up to that place, that valley, and they literally, they met him, they literally annihilated the, the, the Philistine army that day. Took all their, their gods, burned them in a fire. Now, we're meant to notice something very specific here in this passage. And it's these words. And it's that David inquired of God. David inquired of God, and that's the reason for the victory. 
The second story, in, verse, in the verses 13 and 16, much the same thing. The Philistines raid. David inquires of God. God gives them a unique strategy for their victory. David beats, beats them right to the ground, destroys their army. And then this, it, it's an incredible, if you hear all the details how, uh, of the massive armies that they faced with just a small army in comparison. It's amazing. And verse 17 sums up what happened. So David's fame spread through, the, through every land, and the Lord made all the nations fear him. David's reputation is gets spread far and wide, and all the people around him are afraid of David and the Israelite nation. But here's the strange thing, though. If you, here's the strange thing. There's actually another account of this very version. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 6. These two stories that we just talked about of David's victory, you know when they happened? They happened before the incident of Uzzah and the ark. So what we see here, are you following me, guys? I'm trying to lead you somewhere. So what we see here is the writer of Chronicles employs a thing called, kind of a thing called like a flashback. Movie producers do that in movies today. You know, we watch movies, we watch the action, then all of a sudden it stops, and then you see flashbacks from previous scenes to give you a better idea of what's happening in the current, right? It's, it's, it's kind of like the same thing. The writer, the chronicler, does the same thing. He employs a kind of flashback. Why does he do that? So he can remind us all the ways that God had blessed David. Talks all about the favor of God on, the, on David as a king and all his kids. And all about the stunning victories that David, that God gave David. It's as if the, God is, is saying this. God is saying this. It's the same God. He is the same God. He is the same God. Same God who struck Uzzah dead. He's the same God, David. So the question is, what do we make of that? What do we make of that? Here's what we make of that. We, you know, there's absolutely no doubt. There's no doubt that God faithfully blesses his people when his people seek him, right? And the chronicler gives us this flashback to say, don't get the wrong idea about God. He is not unpredictable. He is not short-tempered. He is not unreasonable. In fact, our God is so, so good. And he faithfully blesses his people. For example, Odeb, Obed-Edom, 1 Chronicles 13, 14, the ark remained with the family of Obed-Edom in his house for three months, and the Lord blessed his household and everything that he had. Another version says he blessed everything around him. He blessed everything. He blessed his family, blessed his children, blessed his finances, even blessed his neighbors around him. The blessing of God. Blessing is God's default pattern. Amen? It's his normal way. Blessing is who he is, his nature. He's kind. And if you read the Bible, you understand. You read just one portion of Scripture, you think, well, who is this God? But you read the rest of the Bible, even in the Old Testament. You read through the Psalms that describes David. People who really knew him say, he's kind and he's compassionate. He's full uh, and rich in mercy, quick to forgive. You know, that's who God is. You know, and that's, what God, that's who God was in the Old Testament. That's who God 
was in the New Testament, is in the New Testament, that's who God is today. That's who He is today. You know, and, and this, listen, a key, a key to living in God's love and God's blessing is to inquire of the Lord, to inquire of the Lord, it's to seek Him. These two verses are synonymous, inquire and to seek Him. And they're key in this book. See, we just can't inquire of God when we've hit our, a dead end or when we're at our wit's end, when we've done everything that we could think of first. We can't do that. Inquiring of God is supposed to be a, is a way of life to us. It's meant to be a way of life. It's an act of humility, like a servant constantly asking his master, what do I need to do today? Now, God wants us to be dependent on him, to ask him. And the Bible says, again, again and again, again and again, if you want his blessing, if you want God's blessing in your life, always inquire of him. Always seek in faith, his face as you sort out what to do. Deuteronomy 4, verse 7. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him? Psalm 50, verse 15. Call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you will honor me. Matthew 7, 7. Jesus said, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. Yeah. Wow. Powerful promises. Listen, I know there are things that are happening in, in your life, in, in my life, where, where we need to inquire of the Lord. Amen? There are decisions that, that, that you, are, you are making, you're, you're, you are, there are directions that you're choosing, you know, and we need to be seeking God. So often I know of, of even Christians that I know, they want to know what God's life, God's will in their life. And they said, well, I read the scripture and this picture kind of boomed out at me, so that's God's will for my life. I kind of feel that's the way. You know, and that's okay. It's good to, for us to, to uh, search the scripture. But, you know, we need to remember that every, every important decision needs to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And that's why we don't just read, we read the word for sure. That's the first place we go to. But we also go to godly counselors in our life. You know, godly people who have a relationship with God, who would know, who would sense, who know you as a, a person, a friend, and want to help you in making the right decision. Right? There's always more than one confirmation. And I've seen, seen so many Christians make decisions without really seeking God and inquiring. You know, God, I believe that God blesses the person, the church, the nations, the nation that seeks Him, and it's just, you know, that's it. It's as simple as that. God blesses people who seek Him. So, question, what, what about Uzzah? What about Uzzah? And now the writer takes us back to Uzzah. Now that we're clear that God faithfully blesses His people, First Chronicles 15 to 11. Then David summoned Zadok, Zadok, Abiathar, the priest, Uriel, and all these other guys and these Levites. Verse 12. And he said to them, You are the heads of the Levitical families. You and your fellow Israelites are to consecrate yourselves and to bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, to the place I have prepared for it. It was because you, the Levites, did not bring it up the first time that the Lord our God broke out in anger against us. 
we did not inquire of him about how to do it in the prescribed way. David confesses, we did not inquire of the Lord about how to transport the ark in the prescribed way. See, they had used two farm boys dressed in work clothes instead of Levites dressed in white linen. They used an, an ox cart to carry the ark instead of the ark being transported on the poles on the shoulders of the priest. See, it didn't matter that the, all the people were praising God. And it didn't matter that they had the right idea about trying to return God to the center of the nation's life. What, what the writer is saying here and what David is saying here is this, that when we forget that God is holy, we're in danger. In the book of Acts, when God came in Pentecostal power, when there was a mighty move of God and the power of the Holy Spirit was poured out on all these, on these people, when that move of God came, Ananias and Sapphira forgot that God was a holy God. Ananias with this couple, they sold some of their land and they took the money and they gave it to the apostles, to Peter. And then Peter asked him, is that all the money? And they said, oh yeah, that's all the money, but they lied. They kept some of it back for themselves. And those, and the, the, those, those words no sooner left their mouths when God struck them dead. It's Chris Reed, he's a morning star prophet. He just said recently, if God would come today, there would be many Ananias and Sapphiras. Wow. You know, today is God's people. Now, I'm trying to put this into balance here, okay? I, but, but today is God's people. I believe we always have to consider God's holiness. We need to consider it. Question, why was the penalty, why was the penalty for casually touching God's ark, God's holy ark, so severe? Why? Because I believe that God was trying to make it clear that he's a holy God. And if we don't understand God's holiness, we will never understand God's salvation, right? God takes a risk in coming near enough to love us personally. And that risk is that we will commonize him. We will think that he's like us. When really God, he's utterly perfect and he's perfectly sinless. Do we agree with that? And if we minimize his holiness, then our sinfulness doesn't seem like a big idea, does it? Right? And if that happens, then we minimize our need for such a great salvation. And then, you know, Jesus dying on the cross, dying on the cross makes no sense, does it? And what, we ha what's hap what happens to us is that we lose any sense of, of being vulnerable to the judgment of God. You know? And, you know, and we keep going. We may even, we may even come to believe that God loves all people and he saves all people no matter what they've done and how they live, right? See, I believe that one of the, the problems we have today, and I think it's a danger today, is, is the preaching that happens sometimes. That, that, uh, is the preaching and the promotion of, of a casual God, a casual approach to God. You know, an approach that sometimes could even border on the irreverent. And, and sometimes, I know, we see this in the way that we do church today. And, 
And I don't like to talk, preach a lot about hell. I don't talk about, you know, and the, the power of, of sin to send you to hell. And, and, and I like to talk more on the love of God, which is really, really what we need to focus on. But we need to also mention that sin, unrepentant sin, leads to death. And that we need the blood of Jesus, right? So, we see, we can, we can preach, we, we can preach a lot of good things. We can never ever talk about hell or judgment or the burning lake of fire. But we do that. Why do we do that? Because often we do that because we don't want to, want to offend people. We don't want to turn them back from coming back to church. You know, and sometimes, you know, even as pastors, we don't like to talk about the horrors of the cross because that will make people feel uncomfortable. And see, what we can end up doing in our modern-day services today in church is we can, we, we can talk about, we, we can try to make people who are coming to church feel really comfortable. And so we try to bring aspects of the world that, that they can identify with. You know? Listen, you know, we can't worship to secular music. We can't do that. Right? Playing secular, secular music doesn't invite the presence of God in. We can do make our churches so inviting to every single person, make everyone so comfortable that they're never, ever challenged with the gospel message. You know, in that way, listen, it's been proven. You can attract a lot of people, but very little of the presence of God. I want the presence of God. It's the presence of God we need. It's the love. That's the love of God. That's the power of God. That's the power of salvation. Amen? And I think as we as believers, we need to have a be aware that God is a holy God. Didn't we sing that song this morning? Holy, holy is he, the Lamb of God. You know, there are actually churches, let me see, this is true, there are actually churches in, in America that are preaching today that there's no such thing as hell. And if there is a hell, then God would never, ever send anyone to hell because he is so good and he is so loving and he is so accepting that he would never, ever send anyone to hell. But listen, I want to tell you, they forget that God also hates sin. He hates sin. And the very reason why Jesus came was because of our sin. He was the cure for our sin. He took the danger away. Amen? Does that make sense to you? See, that's the integral part of the good news. The integral part of the good news is that Jesus came to save us from hell so that we could go with him, to, to be with him in heaven. 1 Peter chapter 4, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14, says, As God's obedient children, never again shape your lives by the desires that you followed when you didn't know better. Instead, shape your lives to become like the Holy One who called you. For Scripture says, you are to be holy because I am holy. Wow, be holy because I am holy. That's a tall order. Can we ever do that on ourselves? No, it's impossible. So here's what, you know, here's what the Apostle Paul tells us. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. For it is not from man that we draw our life, but from God, as we are being joined to Jesus, the anointed one. And now he is our God-given wisdom, our virtue, 
our holiness, and our redemption. Are you thankful for Jesus? Well, only Jesus' shed blood can make us clean and holy, right? Christ is our holiness. Grace is embedded, has embedded into our lives. Holiness is embedded by God's grace into our lives through our relationship with Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 is one of the most important scriptures for us to read today. Hebrews 10, 19, starting at verse 19. And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and a life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting Him. For our guilty conscience, consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean, and our bodies have been washed with pure water. Praise God. Jesus took away the danger. But we are still called to approach Him in a way that reveres Him, that respects Him. We are called to approach Him with a sense of deep reverence and, and a healthy fear and an awe of God and all His ways. Amen? The story of Uzzah, trying to wind up here. The story of Uzzah, you know what it is? It's a wake-up call. And I believe it's a wake-up call to the church in this time and this, this season. Eugene Peterson, who's an author, Christian writer, wrote a book called Leap Over the Wall. And this is what he wrote. Sometimes I think that all religious sites should be posted with signs reading, Beware the God. The places and occasions that people gather to attend to God are dangerous. They're glorious places and, and occasions, true, but they're also dangerous. Danger signs should be conspicuously placed as they are at nuclear power stations. Religion is the death of some people. The story of Uzzah and David posts the warning and tells the glory. Wow. Some lessons to learn. David had given clear instructions about transporting the ark. And David found them when he finally looked for them. The Bible for us today is the only reliable source about how we are to come into the presence of God, right? The Holy God. And the problem today is people are forever thinking, well, they can approach God when, how, when, where, however they wish. And, but I believe, that's a, I believe that's a danger. I think that's a dangerous thing. You know, we just can't make, up, make it up as we go. We are to be guided by His Word and enabled by His Spirit. And everything we, we do in and of ourselves will fall short of the glory of the, and the holiness of God. See, we no longer, today, we no longer have an ark. Instead, we have Jesus. We have Jesus, whose blood cleanses us and prepares us to be in His presence. Right? We have Jesus. We no longer have to fear coming and approaching a holy God. Because of Jesus, instead of death, we have life.
So, question. Should people who grasp God's holiness cower in fear? What's the answer? No, of course not. Not if, not if we love him, not if we serve him, but if we've been covered by his blood. So question, how should we, how should we approach our holy God? And I think David tells us. David shows us the right approach to a holy God. And that is to celebrate with all our might as to worship. The foundation, the foundation of worship is, is, is the holiness, is in his holiness. I believe that everything about God is holy. Everything about God is holy. True holiness is also about his justice, his mercy, you know, his righteousness. You know, and everything, when David tried to bring that ark in the second time, everything went well. And this is the first time, if you, if you study the gospel, you'll find that really this is the first time the worst, that worship, Israelite worship, where David appointed musicians of every kind, all kinds, and, and specifically he would call it about uh, those who play harps or, or those who play the lyres. He, he organized together in, in, in divisions, and he had this he had all these worship people. He had singers. I mean, everything was so well orchestrated by David. He set it all up. So he had musicians, singers of every kind. Second Samuel chapter 6, verse 12. See, so David went up, went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might. While he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. And it sees that David celebrated with all his might. The holy God is among us. He is with us. You know, he will call us his people. He will fight our battles for us. You know, and, and he will even love us so Incredibly, that he will sacrifice his only son so that we might become holy like him so that he, and that he will bring us into eternity. <clears throat> you know, one of the best books and one of the best movies I ever saw was C.S. Lewis' book. It was based on C.S. Lewis' book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Anybody familiar with that? And it's all, and there's a part in that movie where the, those kids, when the children are talking, and the, where they, when the children first hear about Aslan, and they learn that Aslan, he's a lion, he's not a person. We know that. Who does Aslan represent? Jesus, right? And so Susan, one of the girls, Susan, says, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Mrs. Beaver says, that you will, dearie, and make no mistake. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just plain silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Isn't that great? Isn't that great? No. He is both lion and the lamb. Both lion and the lamb. But I believe according to the scriptures, that the first picture that we need to have of God, of Jesus, is the picture of the Lamb. It's a picture and a symbol of God's sacrificial love of us. In fact, if you study the scriptures, 
you'll find that he is called lion only once in the New Testament. That's in Revelation. He's called Lamb of God 29 times in the New Testament. And the first time he's called that is in John 1, 29. When John, was it John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming, and he said to his disciples, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Lamb of God is the picture of God's love. The Bible says God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son, Jesus, that if we believed in, we, in him, we would not perish, but have eternal life. Listen, God is both. Jesus is both. Lion and a lamb. But listen, let's know him first as Lamb of God, the one who takes away your sins. Amen? But he's also the lion. He's the fierce warrior who fights our battles for us, who stands in our defense. Amen? Amen? Amen. Bow your heads. Thank you, Father. <clears throat> you know, what's the Holy Spirit saying to you today? You know, have you had an encounter with Jesus? Have you been confronted with the message of the gospel? Today, if you've never invited Christ into your heart, you can receive a brand new life and the gift of eternal life. You can be alive, free from sin, of the, of, the, of the guilt of sin, a life of forgiveness, a life of peace, a life of grace, and a life of power. And all you have to do, so what do I have to do, God? All you have to do is believe in Jesus, that he died on the cross, and he gave his life, shed his blood for you. Just believe that. And the second thing you have to do, just receive him. Invite him into your life. Say that prayer. Invite him into your life to be Lord and Savior of, of your life. And you will receive the gift of eternal life. So if that's you today, believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. And then today, just invite him into your heart. So if that's you, and you want, you want Christ, you want Jesus in your life, then let's cry out to God just by saying this prayer. So let's bow our heads, let's close our eyes. And if you need Christ, repeat after me. Dear Jesus, I believe you died on the cross and you shed your blood to pay for my sins. Today I ask you, Father, to forgive me of all my sins. And today, Lord, I invite you, I receive you, I invite you into my heart, I invite you into my life to be Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.